I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Today on the show, Jennifer Finney Boylan and Raquel Willis, two trans women, share their personal stories and tell us how they live with transphobia and how to fight it. Republicans in state houses and in the U.S. Congress have mounted a campaign against transgender people, targeting gender-affirming care, restricting sports participation and school curricula, banning drag storytelling for children, and policing bathrooms. Now more trans men and women are out and enjoying success. Jeopardy winner Amy Schneider, HHS Assistant Secretary Dr. Rachel Levine, and actress Laverne Cox, to name just three. Yet violence against transgender people has increased dramatically in recent years. Now, we know much more about gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation than we did a generation ago because of new scientific research. Nonetheless, there is still genuine confusion about living in a non-binary world, our topic for today's connection. Jennifer Finney Boylan is uh, a best-selling author of more than a dozen books. She is the inaugural Anna Quinlan Writer-in-Residence at Barnard College of Columbia University and a fellow at Harvard University's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Her latest book is a novel titled Mad Honey, co-authored with Jody Picot. Jennifer Finney Boylan, it's been about 20 years. Nice to talk to you again. Hi, Marty. Yes, it was in your studios at WHYY. In 2003, where I first talked about She's Not There, and uh, it was a long time ago, but I'm so grateful to you then and now. It's wonderful to be back on the show. Well, great to have you back as well. Raquel Willis is an activist and an author of the forthcoming memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. She focuses on social justice and storytelling with a particular interest in honoring the dignity of black trans people. And Raquel Willis, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Yes, thank you, Marty. I'm excited to be on. (laughs) Well, we're excited to have both of you with us. And there is so much that I do want to talk about. And Raquel, perhaps I can begin with you. How dangerous is it to be trans today? Well, that is a big, big question. I think we are definitely living in a society that continues to have all of these issues around people who transcend gender norms or really just transcend these boxes of expectations kind of put on all of us. Um, Right now is a particular time because we actually have more language and tools to understand the trans experience than maybe ever before. So, of course, many folks have heard that there are upwards of 471 anti-LGBTQ plus bills moving across the U.S., Many of them are targeting the trans community. Um, But I want to be clear that transphobia and trans misogyny has existed long before this era, you know, and just as those systems of oppression have existed, so have trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming people existed. We may have just used different names to describe our experiences in previous times. Jennifer, let me go to you. You came out about 20 years ago. You were actually 40 years old. How do you see then and now as times for transgender people to be out? Well, things really have changed. And uh, before I go any further, I want to say what an honor it is to be on your program with Raquel, who uh, has done such remarkable work um, for our community. 
she and I, in some ways, represent two different generations uh, of of trans experience. When I came out in you know 20 years ago, almost 25 years ago, no one had really been taught that they were supposed to hate me just yet. Uh, generally, I was I was able to get by. It wasn't easy by any means, but mostly people left me alone and. Even my mother and her evangelical Christian friends will all thought, well, y- you you seem like the same person, and we know that what we're supposed to do is to love one another, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. And you know, Raquel is right that there we do have better tools now, and there is, in to some degree, better understanding, and there is certainly better visibility. But with that increased visibility, has come an increased blowback and so now we're, we're looking at all these bills um, but as Raquel said the transphobia uh, began long before this uh, and you know it's it's probably been been around for as long as there's been trans people. No question about it. Raquel, let me go back to you and and just reading a little bit about your growing up. You grew up in a in a as you described a traditional southern family in the 1990s. Um, what was the process for you of coming out? You first came out as gay and then later came out as trans. What was that process like for you, if it's possible to distill it into a minute or two? <laughs> Sorry about that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's fine. And what I don't get to, please check out in the memoir. I have to plug <laughs> that for my publisher. Um, but I, first, I also just want to extend my gratitude as well to Jennifer for paving the way for so many uh, trans folks and particularly um, those of us invested in storytelling and, and trying to make sense of our experiences on the page and, and in media. So thank you, Jennifer. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's interesting. I also want to just kind of nod to what Jennifer was saying about how different things were even just a decade ago. So I came out at least publicly as trans in 2012 national coming out day 2012 it was on facebook Hmm. it was easy for me because i was able to just kind of tell everyone i ever even thought about knowing and then that kind of settled things you know i was able to share my pronouns share how to engage with me and so it made it a little bit smoother um but even that was just kind of before this uh, trans tipping point we often talk about in the media, of course, with the emergence of Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black and, and so on and, and so forth. For me, growing up in Augusta, Georgia, um, I was in this kind of, uh, you know, Southern experience. I had all of these kind of expectations from my parents who, you know, came of age in the civil rights era. They were black upward upwardly mobile strivers and so anything that kind of got in the way of um, me having a fulfilling life having a life full of success and and potentially um self-sufficient uh was was kind of that was the the goal and so for me to then come out as gay and and kind of deal with that along with the catholic upbringing it threw a lot of wrench in the cogs, if you mm-hmm. can imagine. Um, and then I also just, even beyond that, um, realizing that it was more of a gender thing, 
was was kind of taking it even further. I think maybe they could have understood on some level um, me being some kind of gay, um, but still kind of embodying this respectable idea of maybe a black manhood experience. But that just was not my lot in life. And I will say I feel very lucky to have had a family that has evolved alongside me. And I have a lot of love in my life. Raquel, I have a question for you. Do you think that this is true? The difference between you coming out 10 years ago and me coming out 20 years ago is that when you came out, you were able essentially to say, here I am and to be proud um, and not to have to kind of apologize for yourself. Because I know that when I came out 20 years ago and even in the pages of She's Not There, there's very much this there was this air of. Oh, I'm so sorry um, uh, for the for the trouble I've caused you, but I'm really not a bad person. Please forgive me. And I, one thing I've really noticed about a younger generation and people coming out now is that they're not apologizing. They're saying, you know, we we are here and we deserve to be treated with respect. And there's this is not it's not an occasion for for um, for apology or for sorrow. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, and Jennifer, if I can pick up on that. Um, what you're saying is that for you, and obviously everyone has their own story, so I don't want to have you represent anyone but yourself, that there was something kind of tragic about what had happened. This is, you know, this was a person in a wrong body, whereas in today, it's it's much more embracing, as I understand it from the outside. Yes, Jenny? Yeah, I think that's fair. Raquel, do you think that's fair? That's you know, it, it's hard to say because I think I, I was I was very much insulated. So when I came out, I was in college, really away from family, but also kind of away from my origin communities, black communities. And so I was at the University of Georgia, really mostly surrounded by white queer people and really the only trans people I know knew were like white trans masculine people. So I had kind of an mm. atypical coming into my identity experience. And, and there were elements of it that were isolating. But I, I think I kind of was insulated from a lot of the experiences that my other black trans sisters and siblings had because I had this kind of socioeconomic privilege. I had this kind of educational privilege, even though I was experiencing isolation at a flagship institution in the South. Well, and as I understand it, Raquel, I mean, there were a lot of fights with with you and in your family. I think your parents at, you know, at, at some point, you all were on the same team, if I can put it that way. And I wonder for you, Jennifer, um, what it was like for your parents when you were coming out? Well, my father um, died when I was pretty young. Um, my mother was uh, an evangelical Christian, but she she got when I came out to her, um, I, you know, I, I I told her, you know, that I was trans and that I'd known I was trans, although I didn't have that language for it. But since I was you know, six or seven years old, and but I was I was sorry that I hadn't told her because I was afraid she wouldn't love me anymore. And mom got up out of her chair and put her arms around me and said, "I would never turn my back on my child." She said, wow. um, "You know that that you know." She quoted First Corinthians to me. She said, "The greatest of these is love," and she put her arms around me and she said, "Love will prevail." 
and that was that was my support i mean i got a lot of support from my mother and from and from my family uh and 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 i want to say that's not entirely typical um but that was my experience and and it was my experience within a fairly um conservative religious family and that and we're almost having a break here jennifer but um i mean that was her immediate response to you telling her Right. But again, you know, she watched Fox News every night until the day she died. But no one on Fox News, when I came out, was telling her that she was not supposed to love me, that that somehow, um, you know, that we we were not yet we'd not yet been chosen as the uh, the whipping girls. Well, that's and that's what's changed. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to pick up on that after this very short break. We are talking with two trans women. That's Jennifer Finney Boylan. Uh, she's a writer in residence at Barnard College of Columbia University. She's also a fellow at Harvard University's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She's written more than uh, a dozen books. Her latest book is titled Mad Honey, co-authored with Jody Pico. Raquel Willis has a uh, memoir that will be coming out in a couple of months titled The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Living. She's an activist and an author focusing on social justice and storytelling for black trans people. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. There is a growing number of anti-transgender bills in legislatures across the country, I believe 471 and probably counting. We are talking about the campaign against trans people with uh, two trans women, Raquel Willis and with Jennifer Finney Boylan. Raquel, what do you think is behind this campaign against trans people? Well, it's many things. Um, You know, I I think one thing we can definitely be certain of is that in the aftermath of uh, some of the strides made around marriage equality, and in particular, the assimilation of cisgender, uh, gay, lesbian, and bisexual and queer folks into mainstream society, um, trans folks became, as Jennifer was just speaking of before the break, you know, the whipping girls and folks. Um, And so right now we're seeing particularly the Christian right has uh, coalesced um, in trying to restrict our ability to determine our destinies on our own terms, but also our access to bodily autonomy. I'm thinking too, Jennifer, and I guess using um, uh, gay and lesbian rights as an example, that there is growing acceptance of, of marriage, which is now legal, of course, because people know people who are gay or lesbian. Do you think that will also be true for trans people? Well, I hope it's true. There are, there are a lot of us. Um, I, 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 picking up on what Raquel was just saying, with uh, marriage equality uh, moving mainstream and with the, um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, so now, you know, it is essentially transgender people have been chosen as the new way of 
um, you know, whipping up the base. And it's funny because in in many ways, transgender rights are the flip side or they're, they're, they're deeply connected to the issues around abortion, which is to say it's about the ability to do what you need to do with your own body and to keep government and other people from intruding into your private life and and things that are really no one's business except between you and your doctor. And the, the fight for abortion rights and the fight for trans rights really are connected. And in some ways, it's the same argument. But now that abortion has been kind of crossed off the to-do list by the conservative right, uh, tra- uh, trans people are 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 now are now the target, and we are, um, uh, to some degree, I guess, straight cis non queer people think of us as um, harder to know and harder to understand. Um, if you, it, it's one thing to say love is love, which is a way of kind of embracing both you know, gay marriage and straight marriage, but it's something else to say that my identity uh, needs to change and that I am um, not what I appeared to be uh, when I was born. That's a harder thing for people to get their mind around, although it shouldn't be because all of us go through a journey to become the people that we know we are meant to be in our hearts. I don't see that trans people's journey really needs to be thought of as so extraordinary. It's really very similar to the journey everybody goes on. It's just in a different way. Well, and I'm really glad you said that. And Raquel, let me go back to you because I think, and perhaps even my focus today is, you know, what does it mean to be trans and what is that, 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 that process like when all of us as human beings, however we define ourselves, have to figure out our identity. I mean, the name of the show is The Connection because we all have to figure out how to put the pieces of ourselves together. And they may not be the pieces that we started with when we were just born, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, my vantage point is is different. So, you know, for me, I, I think it's often a disservice for anyone to kind of whittle me down to one of my identities. Of course, <laughs> I am black and having this experience within the United States. So when I look at what's happening with the attacks on critical race theory or, of course, the banning of the books and, and of course, the conversation around don't say gay or don't say trans, you know, all of that is about restricting access to understanding the experiences of marginalized folks, which in essence also restricts our capacity for empathy. So we are in a crisis of empathy and we really need to get a handle on it and make sure that um, we don't continue to kind of sideline um, folks on the margins. Um, One thing that's important for me to, to think about as well is that we have always needed these broad coalitions of folks on the margins. I mean, just look at the works of many of our uh, freedom fighters who have been, of course, activists and organizers, but of course, writers and thinkers. We need folks of color to be in coalition with uh, immigrants, who many of them also are. We need them to be in coalition with folks who are demanding access to reproductive justice. We need them in conversation, of course, with trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary folks. And of course, we also need 
need to be having some deeper conversations around class struggle with many of the strikes that are happening across various industries. And I often think when we only think of trans folks in this kind of myopic way, we ignore these different parts of our lives, that we are black and brown, that we are fat and thin, that we are disabled (laughs) and able-bodied, that we have sacred experiences and have religious experiences, and also that we are being oppressed within a capitalist system. And so what are we going to do in the face of all of these systems of oppression that are facing us beyond just kind of these sensationalist ideas of one part of our identities? Or our bodies, as as you say, Jennifer, in a piece you wrote recently in the Washington Post. Let me, though, just put something out there, and I'll start with you, Jennifer, because I think is yes, transphobia, homophobia is absolutely real, and it is a threat. But I also think that there is genuine confusion about the language living in a non-binary world, how to understand things like gender identity and gender expression and sexual orientation, and how people, folks are, you know, figuring out what that means for them. And I think for a lot of people, if I can speak for a lot of people, getting out of this binary world is is confusing. Does that, do you have any sympathy for that, Jennifer? Well, of course, it is, it is difficult um, to learn to um, understand the experiences of people who who are different, who are not you. But, you know, you're, you're, you're going to spend most of your life with people who are not you. Right. And so it is in everyone's best interest to try to understand the experience of being human for, for, uh, for other people. And there's, there's a couple ways of going about l- learning that language. And I am, I am happy when people do the homework, when they read um, books like Raquel's new book coming out uh, this summer, uh, like, uh, you know, great works by um, Jameson Green and um, Janet Mock uh, and all of our trans and non-binary brothers and sisters. If you do your homework, you can understand people in this in, in, in a better way and stories are really helpful. But there are others, there's a better way or there's another way of coming to understand people, which is simply... Open your heart. You really don't need, you don't have to understand all the theory and all the language and the, com- the complexity in order to simply be kind. And it doesn't really need to be more complicated than that. Open your heart and accept that there are people in the world who are not you <laughs> and who, who deserve to live their lives with dignity and with respect. And, you know, if, if you can't do any of that, at the very least, leave us alone. <laughs> so that, I mean, it, this, it's kind of the difference between, as we say in storytelling, showing and telling. Hmm. You can tell people, you can give people a lecture, you can tell people to read a book, and I hope that they will. But you can also learn by showing, by seeing, by looking. Look at the lives of trans people and see, yes, we struggle. Yes, our lives are hard, but our lives are also glorious and full of wonder. And we deserve that respect, too. And that is Jennifer Finney Boylan, who joins us along with Raquel Willis, two trans women, talking about the world that we all live in. 
Raquel, just picking up, and I, and I don't want to spend a, 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 an inordinate amount of time talking about things like pronouns, but nonetheless, that gets a lot of attention. You know, I have screwed up on the air mispronouncing or mis, misidentifying a guest that wanted to be called by certain pronouns and, and have felt badly about it. But how important do you think that is in the large scheme of things? Well, Marty, and I don't mean any disrespect to you at all. I I think we need to have a conversation about weaponized ignorance. I think the conversations around pronouns, these kind of, as uh, Toni Morrison eloquently put in a very uh, important interview, you know, racism used as a distraction. I think that Mm -hmm. this kind of idea of just focusing on pronouns, focusing on what people are wearing that is a distraction from these deeper conversations that we should have. Um, It's weaponized ignorance. I I find it very um, ridiculous that many folks claim to not know that trans folks exist in 2023. I'm sorry. You know, we've been, we're on the other side of a trans visibility era. Um, And I can understand that many folks may not know a trans person in their everyday life. I I believe that because the statistics tell us. But you know that we exist. I I think what we really need to be talking about is how people are going to interrogate their own problems with gender. So the folks who are enacting hate and violence against trans and non-binary folks, a lot of times it's because they feel inadequate in their own embodiment of whatever gender that they are clinging on to. I think about the cisgender boys and men. Cis is not a slur, period. I think about (laughs) the cisgender men and boys who do not have access to... Um, their emotional intelligence. I mean, they can't like pink. They can't like certain things without being labeled as gay as if that is such a negative thing. And then on the other side, I think about the cisgender women and girls who are told that they can't be brilliant, strong, capable leaders um, in so many different ways. And so we're all kind of stuck in the muck of these gendered expectations. And my hope is that folks will, as we continue to be on this human journey together, understand that we all need to be liberated from these expectations and just be able to exist. And I I think more importantly than pronouns for me in this moment is thinking about this epidemic of violence that Mm. trans folks of color are facing. You know, I think it's convenient for many of us to talk about legislation because it animizes uh, the experiences of trans people. So you don't have to think about the particular ramifications of for certain individuals. So I think about a black trans activist named Banco Brown, who was just killed in San Francisco. There was no justice Mm -hmm. for him from the San Francisco DA after a security guard killed him. Um, I think about black trans women like Coco Williams and Ashley Burton in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia has such a vibrant black queer community and history and folks are fighting there every day on the front lines. And so I just think about all of these lives that we do actually lose when we whittle down the trans and non-binary experience to let's talk about pronouns and how hard that is for cis people to understand. No, totally fair. Right. And pronouns and 
sorry, people, it, it's pronouns and it's, um, you know, t- uh, trans women in athletics and it's hormones uh, for children. And it's all of these issues that mm-hmm. are important, but they're gnarly and they take sophistication and patience and real understanding to get your mind around. But while people are arguing about these somewhat arcane issues, people are being killed and it's especially mm-hmm. trans women of color are, are, are bearing the, are bearing the brunt of that well, violence. Let me, yeah. and all of us are living, our lives are imperiled. And, you know, we can talk about all this, all of these other issues, but none of that is nearly as important as the, the, the need that we all have to live free and safely. And, and picking up on what Raquel was, was talking about, about the, obviously, the, the violence against trans people and I wonder to you, Jennifer, when you look at the word transphobia, it's about fear. I mean, how that fear gets turned into something as pernicious as not just bullying, but threatening and in certain cases murdering people because of who they are. It's well, it's it's about well, among other things, it's about fear of difference. It's about the, I mean, it's about the fear of change. And I, I mean, I understand you know, no, nobody likes things to change. Um, it's, it's hard. It's even hard on me when something that I have loved, it changes, but you know, not everything should last forever. And there are a lot of things that shouldn't last forever. And embracing change is the, the key to a good life. So the resistance to transgender people to some degree is about that, but it's about more than that as well. And again, uh, that's Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh, who joins us along with Raquel Willis today on The Connection. These are two trans women, and we are talking about uh, the world that we are all living in and the threats that uh, many trans people do face. Uh, Jennifer, if I can go back to you, you have uh, a couple of children, two children, as I understand, um, and one of your children came out as trans. Um, How did you handle that as a parent? Ha- believe it or not, I handled it less well than my own Republican mother did 20 wow. years earlier. Wow. Um, and it, it kind of opened my eyes. I mean, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I, I mean, I was I was loving and I was um, I, I, I hope I was a good parent at that moment. But it was still a moment where I thought, really, how did I not see this? And I had a little bit of melancholy at the fact that the person that I thought I knew was the, and loved my child was um, going to be different than I, than I expected. And it also meant that I knew that my child was now going to be exposed to this world of, uh, possibly this world of, of, of hate. And I, I feared that I had made this life look like it was fun I mean, my mm-hmm. life is fun, actually. My life is, is, is glorious, and I'm, I'm so grateful, but it's also, it's a very hard life, and uh, even, you know, on a good day, and I, I was just afraid for my child. We managed to work through that, to, to, and we did have to work through it, to, to, <laughs> to my surprise, um, and it, it just goes, to, it, it, to, to some degree, it gave me a little bit of sympathy to what um, 
the people that I loved and the people around me were going through when I first came out. And I just kind of wanted everybody just to get with the program immediately and to be happy for me. Um, and they were happy for me, but it, it can take a while. This did to me. And we're almost having a break here, Jennifer. How are, how are things in your child today, with your child today? They are. They are fantastic. Both of my <laughs> children are, are, are doing really, really well. In fact, she's a therapist now, and she's working with young queer people here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Well, let's take that short break. Uh, you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We are talking with uh, two trans women, Jennifer Finney Boylan, again, uh, best-selling author of more than a dozen books. Her most recent book is a novel titled Mad Honey, and it's co-authored with Jody Pico. Also with us, Raquel Willis. She's an activist and author. She's got a forthcoming memoir, which will be out, I believe, in the fall, and it's titled The Risk It Takes to Bloom on life and liberation. Much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. Today on The Connection, what's behind the campaign against transgender people, what you need to know about gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, and gender-affirming care. And again, our guests are Raquel Willis and Jennifer Finney-Boylan. Raquel, I was reading, actually, it's a Trevor Project survey. It's it's about a year old, 2022, and this is having to do with the, the crisis for trans youth Something like 86% of of trans or non-binary youth are experiencing a mental health crisis, about half of them considering suicide, which, of course, is very, very worrisome. What can we do to help? Yeah, well, I think it's about looking at the fullness of our lives as black trans people. You know, oftentimes data ignores kind of looking at multiple parts of our experiences and so for a long time a lot of the data if there even was data on trans folks was on white folks or maybe folks who had access to health care or services um, and so I, I think the data piece is important that we actually have it I think on the other side I think it's that we also just need to be crafting a gender neutral society period and so when I think about the schools that folks are, our youth are uh, going into almost every day, um, those are often sites of violence, you know, whether it's from staff and administrators who don't respect trans folks' identities and experiences, or whether it's from peers who are not, again, learning with empathy on how to be uh, affirming to uh, their trans and non-binary counterparts. You know, and then, of course, this is also happening within a space where uh, trans and non-binary youth are not learning their history. And so I think we have all of these different kind of sites where we can be better. You know, if you are in the educational system, learn how to best show up for trans and non-binary youth. Actually have curriculum If you can, you know, because we do know that that curriculum is also being criminalized across the country. But if you can insert spaces where trans and non-binary youth can see themselves and, of course, correct transphobia, 
uh, every step of the way. So I think that that is key. I think it's also important for trans and non-binary youth to be connected to their communities, whether it is a local ballroom scene or it is at a community center for LGBTQ youth. Um, they need those spaces where they can connect with other folks like them and, and figure out, you know, what their own path and journey is going to be. And then, of course, we need more access to mental health care. And so that has to be a real conversation. And, of course, as a black trans person, I know within my, my own family and, of course, the communities I've been and, you know, mental health is stigmatized. Conversations around these things are, are uh, it, it's difficult to have them. And so we need to have more candor about the fact that our mental health care is just as important as any other part of our health care. You both describe yourself as, as storytellers. And Jennifer, I'll go back to you. Can stories confront transphobia or homophobia and change people's minds? Do we have Jennifer? Did we lose Jennifer? I think we did. I think we did. Raquel, I'll go back oh, to no. you. No, that's okay. It's okay. you and me. We're, we're cool. <laughs> Not your problem. I don't want you to worry about it, Raquel. Let me go back to you. I mean, can storytelling, can stories change people's attitudes? I definitely think so. I think that stories are organizing tools. You know, when, when we hear about somebody's experiences um, and, and with candor, with authenticity, with humor, um, it really is an opening for us to see other folks' humanity. I think about um, authors with such pivotal careers like Jennifer, right? You know, it was it was She's Not There and so many other tomes that she has written um, that really opened uh, the minds of uh, not only trans and non-binary folks, but of course, those outside of our experiences to understand who we are. I think about uh, Monica Roberts, a an award-winning Black trans uh, blogger um, from Houston. She passed during um, the pandemic, um, but she was such a, um, a mentor to me in many ways and someone I saw as a standard bearer for how we could speak more empathetically about the experiences of Black trans people in media. Um, she never got her just do or shine, um, but she's someone that lives on in the careers of, of so many of her media children, and I include myself within that. So I definitely think those stories are are what uh, can bring us together. Um, unfortunately, of course, you know, we're living in a time where there's so many barriers to getting that authenticity. We have misinformation, disinformation proliferating, you know, you you jump on social media, you, you're probably not getting a real story. You might just get a not so great sound bite about a person's experience. You might turn on the news. And of course, we have those stations and outlets that don't really champion the, the dignity of folks on the margins. And then, of course, right now, there are many trans and non-binary journalists who are fighting um, for better coverage of our experiences without kind of the both sidesism that allows um, these anti-LGBTQ entities and figures with long track records to be the dominant um, holders of trans narratives. Right now, they're 
they are two uh, collectives of both organizations and, of course, contributors who are having candid conversations about the newspaper of record, the New York Times. And hmm. so it's important for us to talk about that. And we do have uh, Jennifer back. I think you're back on, on a fo- via phone and, and, and happy to have you back. Let me, I'm looking at the clock here and let me ask you about uh, some of the, the legislation against uh, gender affirming care. Uh, and there are uh, several different headlines from various states that are um, um, in the process of either criminalizing it or certainly making it a lot harder. Um, what's the answer to that? Oh, gee. The answer is is education, for one, although perhaps it's too late for that. The answer, I mean, people need to solve things that are actually a problem and to leave the care that children need, to leave that decision between the children and their doctors and their parents and why we feel that the... the, um, the plight of transgender people is the biggest national crisis that we have right now, given all of the other issues that we're facing. Then you have to take a look at that. Is that is this really the, the greatest problem for the country right now? Or is it the fact that we need somebody to hate? We need some group of people who we don't understand to uh, to put, you know, paint a target on our back. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, do, I don't know what the answer is now, because it seems as if ignorance, the forces of ignorance are in ascendance. All we can do is to stand up and tell our stories and to be visible and let people know that we're here. We've always been here. There's nothing to fear from us. We are your brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings, and all we want is to be able to live our lives in peace and to be left alone. Raquel, I was also thinking of these bathroom bills, you know, the sort of specter of a man posing as a woman to attack other women in a, in a public bathroom, something that, you know, has hardly ever happened ever. Yeah, you know, you know who's the biggest threat if you go by the actual actual numbers of arrests in public restrooms, Republican congressmen, more Republican members of Congress have been arrested for coming on to people and for assaulting people in, in public restrooms than transgender people. So you know what that means? Obviously, what we need are laws making it impossible for a Republican congressman to use the bathroom. What do you think about that, Raquel? <laughs> Well, I'm I'm definitely not in the business of uh, advocating for more Republican nonsense at all. So I hear that. Um, you know, I think that it's important for us to to remember that um, what's happening to the trans community right now is is not really new. You know, Republicans don't really have a track record of being creative or innovative with anything other than rehashing hate from decades ago or even centuries ago. You know, public restrooms have been a site of political violence throughout U.S. history. I mean, I'm from Augusta, Georgia. You know, I have parents and I had grandparents who experienced segregation. And so I think about the ways that public 
accommodations were not accessible to my ancestors. And so I see that playing out right now against trans and non-binary folks. But I I think even beyond that, um, what we need folks to do, and of course, thinking about the healthcare piece, is to start thinking more critically and expansively. And I know that that's hard. I know you have the shade rooms and whatever else, but we have to do that. Even when we're having conversations about gender affirming care, let's get real. Cis people are the largest consumers of gender affirming care. If you think about those who opt for hormonal therapy or have common cosmetic procedures, I mean, how many folks were we talking about going to another country for Brazilian butt lifts just a few months ago? Um, it's considered okay whenever cis people do things that we don't necessarily consider gender affirming, but whenever trans folks do things that actually are, um, impacting our lives, um, then there's this double standard. And I, and for me, you know, I, and I worked with Chase Strangio on this kind of framework for Trans Week of Visibility and Action, which happens the last week of March each year. You know, we want folks to just remember some simple things. One, you can demand that your lawmakers vote no on all of this anti-LGBTQ and hateful legislation. You can educate the folks in your fa- in your circles, your family and friends on the importance of really thinking holistically about care that includes trans and non-binary folks. But also we need to be elevating and supporting trans-led organizations and also trans activists. I know that you live around some. And so how are you going to donate if you have the funds to do that? Volunteer if you can do that. Go into these spaces. And if you want to claim to be an ally, honey, show up. We need you to show (laughs) up. Jennifer, just picking up on, on what you both have said during this hour, and it seems that for people that are struggling with this or are phobic about this, the focus is on the body and body parts and what people are doing with their body parts. How do you counter that? Well, everyone goes on a journey to become themselves. And maybe people are too fixated on the physical part of it. But, you know, we all have to figure out who we are. And um, sometimes it it is very, we we face a lot of of headwinds and a lot of um, blowback when we try to uh, declare our own independence and become the people that we know that we're meant to be. So, I mean, trans people have, I mean, the the problem for us is that being trans is not only a medical condition or it is not a medical condition, but it does often require um, the intervention of the medical community and the healthcare community. So we kind of straddle something that is both um, physical and something that is spiritual. But to focus only on the physical, to only focus on operations and hormones and, uh, you know, all the rest of that is to ignore in some ways the more important part, which is the fact that we are trying to find peace within our own hearts to become ourselves. And if there's any person on, on the earth who has not struggled to live up to the demands of their own hearts, I don't know who that person would be. 
It, it, is, it is a universal struggle, and I wish people would understand that, and that we are not, we are not some... The things that we are searching for are really not so different from the things that everyone else is searching for in order to find their peace. Well, picking up on that, and Raquel, and, and with just a couple of minutes to go, I, and I hate to go back to a word again, and you can, you can, you can uh, wag your finger at me for this, but I was thinking about this notion of, you know, the traditional family. I mean, maybe it's time to toss that idea, because I think once you get to know the inside of families, no one is traditional. I think that that is true. I think that we, I understand, you know, nostalgia. I understand this sure. desire to kind of fit this ideal. I think we're all kind of figuring out what our lives can be outside of maybe, again, all of these expectations put on us. But we need to be prioritizing Again, empathy, vulnerability, the health of each other, and our access to joy. And so, you know, attacking trans folks is not going to bring you joy, honey. You know, (laughs) it it just won't. I know that you want to feel affirmed in who you are, but trans folks are not taking that ability away from you. You need to be talking to those folks who actually do have the power to transform the conditions that you're living in. The lawmakers that are making sure that you don't have as much uh, financial security so that you can live out the dreams that maybe you actually do deserve. Trans folks and non-binary folks, folks of color, women, folks on the margins, they're not the threat. It's really, for many of us, the folks in power who don't have an invested interest in making sure that there is collective liberation. Well, we have to end our conversation there, and I thank both of you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Raquel Willis, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. She is an activist and author. She's got a forthcoming memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. Jennifer Jennifer Finney Boylan, thank you for joining us as well on The Connection. Thanks so much, Raquel. I can't wait to read your book. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> You're very welcome. And uh, Jennifer's uh, most recent uh, book, which she co-authored with Jody Pico, is called Mad Honey. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Connection, where every week we explore a different aspect of human nature. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. You can check out our website, whyy.org slash theconnection. You can follow us on Instagram. You can also follow us on Facebook. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. Debbie Builder is senior producer. Paige Murray-Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoyne. Have a great weekend. Join us next week for another edition of The Connection right here on WHYY.